0: What do Al Pacino, Regis Philbin, Mary Higgins Clark, and Colin Powell all have in common? Well, they're all Bronx natives, and all of them are featured in a new book called Just Kids from the Bronx, Telling It the Way It Was, An Oral History. Good morning, I'm George Polarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Just Kids from the Bronx includes the stories of more than 60 native Bronxites that have gone on to make important contributions in nearly every field imaginable, from acting to science to athletics. The author is Arlene Alda, who happens to be the wife of television and film star Alan Alda. Arlene, welcome to Cityscape.
1: Oh, thank you. I'm really glad to be here. And it's not snowing out today. No,
0: it's not snowing finally. (laughs) Yeah. The Bronx is a pretty big place. Where were you from?
1: Okay, not too far from here. I was born at the intersection, <laughs> in a building, at the intersection of Barnes and Arno Avenues. Not in a
0: hospital, in a building. No,
1: actually, actually, I, I'm, it's not quite that way. I was okay. born in the hospital, taken back to the building called the Mayflower, which took up half a block. And there was a courtyard, and the other half block was taken up by its twin sister building that looked exactly like it, called the Mayfair. So these two huge buildings, 96 families' apartments in each, was my home for, i guess, guessing, for 21 years or so.
0: You lived in a one-bedroom, one-bathroom <laughs> apartment with how many people?
1: Okay. There was—we we were five all together. I have two siblings, uh, my mother, my father, my sister, my brother, me, and our dog, Spotty. Yeah, so it, it was crowded. At first, I probably didn't know, but as time went on, it became evident that that uh, there wasn't enough closet space, that the bathroom was just one, one and you had to—I co- don't remember how we managed, but I think we kind of— Figured out who should have the bathroom in the morning at what time, so it, that went pretty smoothly. and then the sleeping arrangements were kind of strange. You How know? did that work out? At one point I was in the the master what be- was the the one bedroom <laughs> saying the master bedroom the bedroom <laughs> <laughs> and my and my sister was in that bedroom. My brother was on a cot. In the what we called the foyer. And my parents had a bed pushed aside to the wall in the living room, which was made up like a day bed.
0: But you made it work.
1: It worked. (laughs) It worked. (laughs) Small
0: spaces, big families, a common theme in this book of stories of people who grew up in the Bronx, right?
1: Yeah. You know, uh, in those days, actually, this was middle class living or, you know, lower middle class living. Most of my friends had the same situation. Some had the uh, two bedrooms instead of one. But as I got older, I think I began to realize that I was sound sensitive. And there were sounds in the apartment, sounds next door, that really drove me nuts.
0: Like your mother's <laughs> sewing machine, right? <laughs> My
1: mother's sewing machine. And and she was great. I mean, she was a, a really skilled seamstress. So it wasn't as if she were just making noise gratuitously she was uh, making beautiful clothing uh she was selling some of the beautiful clothing she, that would brought in an additional income uh she made my clothing but it didn't quite please me it was something that was a reminder that i was a little i thought a little different than some of the other kids.
0: You're right about how your mother spent endless days and nights working as a housewife, cooking, cleaning, doing the laundry, shopping, etc., and how you didn't want to grow up to be like her.
1: Yeah, it, it's so interesting. Um, I Because I was the youngest in the family, and I think my sister's right about this, I was a little pampered. And my seeing that style of living for a woman was really not up my alley. And my mother actually encouraged me to do anything that I would like to do, because this is America, and you can, you can make your dreams come true. She
0: had an immigrant's dream for yeah, you.
1: It really was the immigrant's dream. And uh, fortunately, she was in my corner, even though I was like obstreperous a, a at home. You know, there were arguments about the noise of that sewing machine. You,
0: though, Arlene, were making some noise of your own. You played oh, the clarinet. Oh,
1: my God. <laughs> you know, I, was t- I must have been so self-centered during those days. I have no recollection of how that may have impacted my family. But by the time I was playing the clarinet, um, my brother was already out of the house. My sister was busy working out in the, you know, in the workplace. And my parents were very encouraging. I mean, they liked the fact, I'm I'm assuming, they liked the fact that I was actually practicing because uh, the piano, which I had before, was not something I practiced. Uh, So for them to invest in lessons... Uh, was a, a sacrifice for me, so my practicing was like okay. At least she's practicing. The so far the investment is good.
0: <laughs> you went on to play the clarinet professionally.
1: Yeah, I did. It was my. It was really a, a passion that I had. Uh, I was lucky enough. I got a Fulbright. I studied uh, for the clarinet. I studied in Germany at the uh, the conservatory in Cologne. Uh, Came back, uh, played in a a training orchestra in New York, and uh, auditioned for the great conductor Leopold Stokowski. And I don't know, whatever it was, I got into the orchestra, and um, it was wonderful. It really was a wonderful uh, realization of something I had worked for.
0: That message that you can do better than your parents is something that a lot of people— in your book heard yeah. as they were growing up, including author Mary Higgins
1: Clark. Yeah. she, she uh, Mary Higgins Clark is like an inspiration to me. Uh, she has always worked hard. She always has a sense of humor. She has a great sense of humor. And I love when she says there are only three places that have a the in front of the name. The Hague, the Vatican, and the Bronx. The Bronx, or the Bronx, if you will, right? (laughs) The Bronx. And uh, her mother also, big encouragement for her, you know, that that her daughter should be not only educated but should fulfill her dreams. She wanted to be a writer. And unfortunately, she had family uh, tragedy in that when when Mary was 11, her father died. And um, not only was it a personal tragedy, but then money was not coming into the household. So the mother rented out the rooms in the in the uh, modest house that they had and managed to sustain that for about four years and then uh, it didn't quite work out and they had to move. And then Mary worked part time when she was going to school. And put off going to college for a long, long while. And she's a graduate of, of Fordham. Yes, yeah, she is a graduate of Fordham. I think a 5 graduate of Fordham, mm-hmm. yeah. But eventually
0: right. she did sell a story for $1,500, oh, yeah. right? yeah,
1: I, I love this. She sold the story, her first story, short story, to the Saturday Evening Post for $1,500. And she was ecstatic. And her mother was even more ecstatic and said, you know, Mary, you can put it in the bank. And Mary already had uh, a lot of things she wanted to buy with the money. But her mother thought that Mary had used up her one idea. (laughs) And I love it. Mary Higgins Clark, like worldwide best-selling suspense novelist. You know, so terrific started in the Bronx.
0: In her story in your book, she talks about the freedom and and independence she had as a kid in the Bronx. You also talk about that in your story, how you could freely roam the streets of your neighborhood.
1: Yeah. You know, uh, I think there's always that great intersection of time and place. Both Mary and I grew up at a, a wonderful time where not only was there an optimistic view of the future... But the kids were free to go out without parental supervision, for better or for worse, and play and explore and, and do things. And the and the, we all knew, come home before dark. That was what we all did. Street
0: games are a big part of yeah. the memories here. Stick yeah. ball, scully, yeah. all of these games that kids played in the streets yeah. back in the day.
1: But it's interesting. Avery Corman put his finger on it. Uh, the he, author
0: of Kramer vs. Kramer.
1: Yes, Avery, great, great author, great writer, uh, great bronxite. He used to play in the streets all the time. Now, this is, again, before high school, and it was during World War II. Well, during World War II, the car industry, which is not like it is now, was they were all doing everything for the war effort. So cars were really not being manufactured that much. There was gas ra- rationing. There were conditions that made it great for the kids to play in the streets. You didn't have traffic. Mm-hmm. Now, <laughs> Avery describes uh, a wonderful scene. At the end of the war, his friend's father bought a car And when his friend's father's car came down that street, the street games were over. It wasn't as if the father killed the street games, but that was the signal. There was too much traffic. You know, people had the freedom to buy the cars, they had the gasoline. And the, the, the kids couldn't play in the street anymore. That's and, what's so
0: great about the stories in your book, is that you not only get a snapshot of what the Bronx was like in a period of time, but really the nation as yeah, well.
1: Yeah. It, it was so interesting to see the way it all unfolded. I was hoping that by having a chronology of the oldest to the youngest spanning seven decades— that you would get a larger picture as well as the specifics of each person's life. There are 64 people I interviewed.
0: Ranging in age from their early 20s to the early 90s.
1: Yes. So, so terrific. And what you get is that wonderful arc of what was happening through the kids' eyes as they were growing up in these decades. And it It was an indication not only of the Bronx or the city, but also the country and the times that they lived in. It was a very interesting picture for me as it unfolded.
0: You're listening to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Our guest this morning is award-winning photographer and author Arlene Alda. She's here to talk about her new book, Just Kids from the Bronx, Telling It the Way It Was, an Oral History. What inspired you to put the book together?
1: Yeah, I must say I I, I was really inspired uh, because I went back with the CEO of J. Crew, Mickey Drex- Drexler, and I went back with Mickey to the Mayflower the building we both grew up in, although I didn't know Mickey had grown up in that building. You're
0: about 11 years apart, right?
1: Yeah, I'm 11 years older, and the building is big, and so it was like trains passing in the night. I never knew it. But anyway, Mickey wanted to go back uh, together, and we went back.
0: How did you know each other, first of all?
1: Uh, Hadn't known one another until about five or six years ago. And we met at a mutual friend's house, and we were standing around talking. Now, the the uh, funny irony of this is, having come from the Bronx, we were in a friend's house which was, or is, adjacent to a polo field. <laughs> so yeah, I hear the words Bronx coming from, you know, two people at the other end of the room and my ears picked up, and it was Mickey talking. And... uh I met him that evening. We couldn't stop talking with one another. It was like, oh, my God, you come from there, too? And my and, building. And then we found out <laughs> it was the same building. That was that was the top right. So you went back it. to the neighborhood, you two. We went back to the hood. We went back to the neighborhood. And it was great because Mickey's excitement in talking about his childhood was so palpable. And it it... It encouraged me to dig into my own uh, memories. But it was that thought of, here is this guy, very successful. And it began here. This is where it was. And all these people from the Bronx who were so terrific. There's Regis Philbin and Colin Powell and, as we said, Mary Higgins Clark. Al Pacino. And Avery Corman and Al Pacino and Neil deGrasse Tyson. And, you know, it goes on and on. And Davis Sobel. Uh, uh, so many in every single field. I could rattle off their names and titles, and yet I knew nothing about where they came from and what happened to them when they were children in the Bronx. That was what I wanted to do. That was that really interested me. And they were so wonderful and generous and open-hearted to, to give me their stories.
0: That being said, how did you go about gathering these people to tell you these stories?
1: Some of them I actually knew, very fortunate in that I knew a handful of people. And uh, I just asked them if they would like to be interviewed for a book. And they graciously trusted me and said, of course. And and so I got their stories. Like
0: Rita's Philbin, who happens to live down the hall from you currently, <laughs> right?
1: <laughs> currently lives down the hall. Very generous, lovely, lovely guy uh, and a friend. And I had heard him talk about um, part of his life at a a book event or a, a cd disc event that he was doing and he told a great story about wanting to be bing crosby from the time he was 6 or 7 years old so now
0: why uh, doesn't that surprise me <laughs> <laughs>
1: So so I started with with Regis and I I wanted to hear him tell that story which he tells it's a, it's a wonderful tale that that uh that has a great ending you have to read it in the book Yes you do <laughs>
0: talk about a wonderful tale David Yarnell oh, independent producer of television shows and documentaries grew pot in a park in the Bronx and sold it
1: <laughs> In what year in the 1940s oh my god this was Unbelievable that you know the, uh, first of all, David is a few years older than I am, but I never knew what Pot was, and I never heard of anyone doing anything as risque as that and david uh, he he explains that the Bronx didn't quite do it for him. he wanted a little excitement, so he and a friend grew marijuana in the park in the public park and watered it with the water, the drinking fountain that the kids used and, and and whatever nature provided. And then they had to harvest it. So he harvested, he said two-thirds of the crop failed, but he, he harvested, put buds in pickle jar, empty pickle jars, stored them under his bed, and on Fridays, his mother would clean, so he had to move them every Friday. And and when I asked him, "Well, what did who who bought this?" He said, "Oh, there was a there there were people, the musicians up in the Catskills were buying what he was selling, and he made something like two hundred dollars that summer. And decided it was too much risk.
0: It's so no wonder he went on to such great success, right?" <laughs> No, I
1: I love I love what David said.
0: For quite a few people in the book, stores help to define their neighborhoods. That was the case with former Secretary of State Colin Powell, who talks about Teitelbaum's Drug Store. I mean, these stores are so prominent in these people's memories.
1: Yeah, uh, Colin Powell. Had, had, I just love talking with him. He's someone I admire so much, and his uh, feeling for the neighborhood where he grew up was so palpable. And he talks about the the, the candy store, the drugstore, the bakery, the Chinese laundry. And he himself worked in Jay Sixer's baby furniture store. And um, he worked part-time, got a job in the summer, earned some money. And Mr. Sixer really liked him. And Mr. Sixer also spoke with a thick Yiddish Jewish accent and Colin Powell picked up Yiddish while he was working there, which came into good use when people would come in. And talk in Yiddish about what they would bargain for. And and Colin Powell would, would uh, understand it and then report to the owner, Mr. Sixer, so that they could make a deal with, you know, he could make a deal with the information that he got. And I just thought that was so great.
0: Singer Dion DeMucci grew up not too far from here. Yeah. He lived a block away from the Bronx Zoo. And his story actually somewhat surprised me. He tells the story of jumping over the zoo fence and getting within five feet of lions, tigers, gorillas, five feet.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I, You know, I, I, I don't know whether that was an exaggeration, but I think it must have been. Something exactly like that. Or what a child the, remembers yes, of that, right? Yes. Because the adrenaline rush of doing that that naughty thing of of getting into the zoo by vaulting over the fence. But you know, it's so wonderful. He's such uh he has such a beautiful command of the language. You know, he's a great lyricist, mm-hmm. great great rock star he talks about those the animals very lyrically in the book it was i i loved listening to him and then he goes on to say that he he became you know a kind of a ne'er-do-well but was rescued by a number of things his talent uh the monsignor in the neighborhood and a social worker Mm-hmm. and these three influences converged to make him uh, appreciate who he was what he had and what he could 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 uh, contribute and it also it was so interesting he said when he went to milan on a record contract he was 19 years old i think and when he saw the people there it he suddenly felt this kinship with the Italians that he did not feel in his own neighborhood. Mm. It was through these uh, trips because of music contracts to Italy that it all, all began to come together for him. And his most wonderful moment was when he was awarded an honorary degree from Fordham University. There we go. And he said it was the proudest moment of his life. And he looked out over the sea of faces, and his thoughts were, and I used to try to climb over the fence <laughs> to get into Fordham, and they'd throw me out, and here I am. And it, But it was, it was a very poignant moment for him.
0: Talking about Italian-Americans from the Bronx, Al Pacino, as we yes. mentioned, grew up in the Bronx. Was he destined for acting as a kid from the Bronx?
1: It seems so. <laughs> from um, from uh, I love it. He he was a child of a divorced household, so uh, his mother and uh, he he and his mother moved in with his grandparents in part of the South Bronx, and the mother had to work, uh, the grandfather had to work. But the mother loved movies and would take him to this little little Al Pacino, you know, three four years old, to the local movie house all the time. And and then he he describes seeing a black and white television set in the window of a department store, and he was looking at it, and that meant something to that kid. You know, another kid might pass by and it might, you know, it might be fun to watch something on it but this he internalized it and when he went to the to the movie theaters he would come home and reenact these scenes for his family it meant something to him and he had the talent so it's just wonderful and then, and he had funny escapades funny now i mean he survived them but jumping from roof to roof uh you know in his neighborhood uh and being ca- his mother probably was one of the people that that helped, helped him on the right path because those were dangerous days, dangerous neighborhood, and she wouldn't let him go out at night on school nights. And he didn't like her for that at the time, but he was very grateful later on.
0: Talk about dangerous days, dangerous neighborhoods, the Bronx in the 1970s and 80s. It took a turn. Crime, arson ran rampant for the people who grew up in the Bronx during its darker days did they have any less of an appreciation for the borough as they looked back compared to others
1: you know it's so interesting kids we all know kids will accept what they have as long as there're loving people around them i'm um, thinking of the uh, three guys from Tat's crew graffiti they're wonderful graffiti artists well one of the the guys his name is nicer okay nicer describes an extended family that could be in any ethnic group uh, an extended family living living close by one another uh, and aunts uncles grandmother grandfather uh, friends close friends never leaving your never having your door locked leaving your door open This was home, and this was comforting. It wasn't until nicer's mother said to him, we have to leave, when the boy was actually confused. Why do we have to leave? Well, the landlord, you know, we've been warned, the landlord is not collecting rent anymore, buildings are burning down, this building is going to be next. Mm -hmm. So the irony of it, this kid moves to Jamaica, Go, he's in junior high school at that point, moves to Jamaica. Uh, he, he, he comes home from school one day, and his door to his house is kicked in, and the place is ransacked. Everything that his mother had worked so hard for was stolen. And taken, so she was so upset. She she grabbed the kid, went back to the Bronx where she felt safe, where they could leave their doors open, and where the grandmother and grandfather and aunts and uncles and friends still were. So the kids did appreciate, as long as they had that stability, uh, that we all know is so important.
0: It appears that for a time in history, it was all about getting out of the bronx for people who grew up here you wanted to leave the bronx but based on some of the stories in the book it would seem that over the years that changed that it was okay to stay in the bronx yeah
1: it was it's a beautiful thing to see there's a, a dancer uh, amar ramasar dances a principal dancer with new york city ballet he was brought up in the bronx to him the bronx meant being home Manhattan was the way station, you know, it was it was not like what it meant to me when I was growing up, like that was Mecca. The Bronx was Mecca to him. It was stable, he's younger. He didn't go through some of the bad times. But even you know, thinking back, the guys who went through the bad times, they still felt very and feel very attached to the Bronx.
0: Arlene, you're married to television and film actor Alan Alda. A lot of people, of course, will remember him as Hawkeye in the TV show MASH. How long have you two been together?
1: In a couple of weeks, it will be. We will have been married 58 years. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you so much. He
0: was not born in the Bronx, but he did go to Fordham University, He went to
1: Fordham, and I was there at his graduation from college. How did you two meet? We met uh, through a mutual friend over a uh, <laughs> at a dinner where a rum cake a heavy rum cake that the hostess or friend had made the, let me backtrack the rum cake was sitting on the top of a refrigerator and over the course of the evening with the refrigerator shaking enough the rum cake slid down to the floor and Alan and I were the only two people in that dinner party who went into the kitchen with our spoons and ate the cake off the floor. Off
0: the floor. That's
1: cemented our friendship.
0: You were meant to be.
1: It was such an omen. <laughs> we were meant to be.
0: Well, Arlene, as a native Bronxite myself, here's to Bronx Pride.
1: <laughs>
0: Sounds great. The book is Just Kids from the Bronx telling it the way it was in oral history. Arlene Alda. Thank you so much for coming in.
1: Thank you so much, George. I wanna tell you about my hometown, Where I was born and raised.
0: Just Kids from the Bronx is out now from Henry Holt and Company. And that's a wrap for this edition of Cityscape. I'm George Bodarki, my thanks to producer Taylor Knoll. Have a great weekend.